If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. All these phenomena are manifested, obviously, differently. They have very local causes. But if we want to pinpoint um, one aspect which is common to them all, and that is anger. That was Pankaj Mishra talking about the common causes of the political and social upheavals of the past 12 months. But one thing that the present, the moment we live in today, shares with the late 18th century is a sense of distrust of the elites. And that was Mishra on the possible causes of what he regards as the present-day age of anger. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to our third podcast of February 2017. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. This week's episode is a World History special to accompany our new sister title, BBC World Histories. Issue 2, which is currently on sale, features a conversation piece between the author Pankaj Mishra and the historian Tom Holland about Mishra's new book, The Age of Anger. And here for the podcast is an extended version of that interview. 
I'm here with Pankesh Mishra, who's written a, a really astonishing, provocative, fascinating book that everyone will profit from reading. And I guess it's the topicality that leaps out. You've called it Age of Anger. And that, of course, applies to the period that you're talking about. It's really the last two centuries. But there is also a sense in which you're talking about the present, that the present is the Age of Anger. And we've just been through quite a year in what sense would you describe 2016 as having been an age of anger? Thank you, Tom. Um, you know, in a way, I think 2016 for me began in 2014 with the election of a man who was accused of mass murder as the prime minister of what is the world's largest democracy. And that's when I felt that we had entered, or perhaps we'd already be, always been living in the age of anger where all kinds of things that we identified as irrational were starting to erupt. So we're talking about Modi we're talking in about, India. We're talking about Modi And in you India. are yourself an Indian. I'm, I'm very much uh, someone, you know, who was born in India, brought up there, educated there, spent all my life um, uh, 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 overwhelmingly uh, uh, sort of, you know, Indian in the way I follow its politics, or feel connected to it as a citizen. But you now live in, in Britain. In Britain, yes. So do you, what kind of link do you see between Modi's India and Britain? Well, in the sense that if any. Modi's election was the first sign that um, things were going wrong uh, with our politics, with our economies, and that we were in for some pretty difficult times. Um, so I had this sense, I mean, you know, partly because I... Um, um, having watched this man emerge out of nowhere, just like we have watched now Trump and we've watched now Brexit, that so many of our certainties, so many of our ideas about democracy, about the will of the people, they're all going to be overturned. And that election did it then. But, um, so, so, but you, have, you have figures like Modi, like Erdogan in Turkey, like Putin in Russia, perhaps like Donald Trump in America. Um, would you include... You would bundle Brexit in among that, would you? Well, I would say that, you know, all these phenomena are manifested, obviously, differently. They have very local causes. But if you want to pinpoint um, one aspect which is common to them all, and that is anger. And that's why I call this book The Age of Anger, is that the sense of frustration, the sense of ressentiment, um, that is evident in practically every political culture in the world today. So the implication of that is that there may be causes that are specific to, say, the past decade, um, the economic uh, turbulence that's followed on from 2008, um, increases in immigration, all these kind of various causes that have played out across the world. But this is not a, a book of, of journalism. It's not a, a study of contemporary history. This is a study of the past 200 years. So in what way do you, do you see the current age of anger as having its roots in something much older? Well, you know, I, I was in a way forced to return to an intellectual history and to consider a much longer time span than just the last few years or just the last decade. Because, as you know, I, I started out primarily as a novelist and as a journalist, and I realised that... Um, my training as a journalist, my interests as a journalist were not sufficient 
for me to grasp this phenomenon, that I had to go deeper. And when I started to read, when I started to think about it, I very quickly realized that I would have to consider a much longer span of history. So, you know, the book then uh, essentially became this project of so how far trying back, to understand. How far back do you go? What, what? Well, I mean, obviously, the beginning of the modern world, the world that we now all inhabit, um, which has, in a way, uh, uh, ideas, value systems, technologies, um, ideologies that first emerged in this part of the world, in Western Europe, then spread to practically every corner of the globe. Um, so if one was to pinpoint a particular moment where it all began, where the modern world began, then one has to go back to the late uh, 18th century and start with the figures who first formulated the ideas and the ideals that we cherish today um, and very problematic ideals. Uh, and these ideals and so. would be associated with what we'd now call the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment, their, uh, the attempt to institutionalize some of those ideals in the French Revolution and then of course the attempt by many different countries to then catch up with these ideals and their institutionalization in Western Europe to have the same sort of systems back in their own countries, uh, which is now, now a process that is more or less universal. So if, we go, if we're going back to the beginnings, you, you structure your, your analysis of the Enlightenment really around two iconic figures, Voltaire and Rousseau. What is emblematic about them? What is emblematic about really their rivalry? Well, uh, you know, in a way, that was really the beginning of the book because it forced me to think that, you know, we have thought about modern history so much in terms of class conflicts, um, East versus the West. We've talked about imperialism. We've talked about racism. But one thing uh, that the present, the moment we live in today, shares with the late 18th century is this sense of distrust of the elites that there are these people out there who are imposing their value systems. Um, it's a minority, but a very well-educated minority uh, who wants us all to follow their prescriptions for society. Now, the difference between Voltaire and Rousseau is this, that Rousseau is an outsider in Paris, and he's the one who challenges these prescriptions that are being handed down by the Enlightenment philosophers. And, 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 and he sees, I think quite rightly, Voltaire as the embodiment of this particular kind of arrogant reason. Because but it's a very interesting perspective, because normally the way that Voltaire is cast is as a, a gadfly who is taking on the elites. He's challenging the Catholic Church. He is challenging entrenched superstition. He is the outsider. But you cast him as someone who is very sycophantic towards despots like Frederick the Great or uh, Catherine the Great. So essentially, are you saying that, that Voltaire really is the prototype for what um, angry people in the Midwest of America or Lincolnshire might describe as, as liberal metropolitan elites? Well, he's certainly one of the first embodiments of um, that kind of confidence, that kind of serenity that we have figured out a lot of things um, and uh, you should listen to us and you should follow us in what we do. 
and, and, and the hostility towards the past. And, as and well, hostility, and very much hostility towards tradition. It's backward, it's useless, it's barbaric, we should do away with it. Uh, religion is a, is, a, is a huge pain, it's you know, a source of oppression. So a lot of attitudes we now think of as classically modern. Uh, his belief in commerce, his own enrichment through trade, commerce. Um, so he's a, you know, he's not unsurprisingly an iconic figure for modernity, for the modern world, because he, he sort of, in his life, in his person, he combines so many different tendencies. Um, so he's, you know, in that sense, I felt that this conflict between Rousseau and Voltaire was much, much more meaningful then we had assumed all along that there was something to be drawn from this particular, and you know, I claim no originality. It was Nietzsche who identified that 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 particular conflict, as, but, but, as he put it, the sort of unresolved problem of civilization. So, and, and and so Rousseau is is kicking back against Voltairean skepticism and enlightened superiority, and enshrining what? I mean, what is he saying matters? His, I mean, his program, his response, um, obviously cannot be summarized simply. It, it, but it that's assumes, part of the appeal, perhaps. Exactly, very much <laughs> yes. so, very much so. Uh, I, I think the, the, the sort of vagueness of it, the emotional quality of it is, is extremely important. The invocation of the people of the people as uh, essentially victims. I mean, I think this is the first time that someone essentially, you know, he practically invented the category of the people um, and also connecting it to a sense of victimhood, that we, the people, are being victimized by this metropolitan elite. So that sentiment, you know, accompanies the birth of the modern world with all its um, exhortations to be modern, to be this, to be that, to urbanize. And here is this man saying, well, what about the people? You know, here we are living our simple lives, being religious uh, in a kind of, you know, naive sort of way. And uh, why are you coming in forcing this process of change upon us? And, you know, he is very much opposed to the idea of change, um, that, you know, change is very disruptive. It forces you to be something that, you know, you cannot probably be, and it, it, it sort of disrupts your inner peace. Um, so many of the themes that we are now struggling with today are kind of sounded by him very early on. Well, and, and you, 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 you're terribly good on the, the, the way that, um, if you want to call it Voltairean modernity, sceptical modernity, is unsettling for people. And, of course, we tend to think of that as, as um, the effect that it has on non-European civilizations. But you talk about Napoleon invading Germany and the effect that that has on the Germans. And you describe the reaction of the Germans to Napoleon as the first Jew. Yes, I mean, I think, you know, it was really important for me because when you come from a place like India, and this has happened to me in previous books, whatever you say is identified too complacently with the East or with Asia, and people start thinking of this whole question in terms of East versus the West. Uh, what I was trying to say here by invoking Germany is that, you know, there was once upon a time a West uh, from which Germany was excluded, from which Germans felt themselves excluded, uh, a West by which they felt humiliated. So if you want to look at the experiences of the Russians or the Indians or the Chinese today, let's Germans. go back to the first people who felt excluded and, from modernity. And, and it's the Germans in the wake of, of uh, their humiliation at the hands of Napoleon who really develop kind of ideas of, of nationalism, which will also be fed into the mix. Absolutely. 
I mean, you know, Napoleon in a way um, initiates this whole process and we haven't seen the end of it, which is a kind of um, mimetic politics. So the French go out and invent something which is a nation state with a strong um, military, a strong sense of patriotism. And then everyone, even while opposing them, even while opposing Napoleon, wants to be like him or wants to adopt his methods. But the thi- I mean, the, the, the thing that is so crucial, particularly in the light of what you've been saying about Modi or um, Putin or Erdogan, is this German idea that's bred of, of, of romanticism, really, that the key to being authentic lies in the deep past. So German poets, German philosophers are looking past the age of the Enlightenment, back to the primal origins of the Germans. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think it's, it's, it's at least partly a response to the um, assertion that the past is of no consequence, that the past is something to be outgrown. And here are these people who are actually pretty close to the past in their provinces and in, 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 in the German-speaking lands. And, and they're saying, look, uh, you know, our past is really yeah. important to us. Um, but at the same time, they also start inventing genealogies for that past. And that's yeah. the beginning of modern nationalism in a way. You, know? <laughs> you start basically saying, look, we are descended from, I mean, practically every nationality in the world has now uh, Emerge from some sort of fraud, yes, or some sort of fraudulent <laughs> claim yes. of that kind. You know, that we come from this place or that yes. place, and it's you know it's it's a kind of reaction to a civic nationalism that emerges more organically in places like England and and and, and France. That you don't have to make those kinds of bogus claims. Yeah. Um, that you know, sense of nationality has more or less sort of developed um, organically due to certain socio-economic shifts. Um, but this becomes a great existential necessity for all the people who come late to the modern world. Practically everyone wants to be seen as a teacher to the rest of humanity. I mean, it's, a, it's you know, you could, you could see this in um, almost comic terms that everyone thinks they are the chosen people. Um, yes. Um, I, and of course, one of the other factors that, that um, serves as a, to dislocate people's sense of communion with their past, and with their tradition, is industrialization. We've talked so far about um, the French intellectual tradition and Napoleon, but um, you also pursue a very vivid metaphor for the Industrial Revolution in England and then expanding outwards, which is um, the Crystal Palace. And you describe ultimately the Crystal Palace as covering the whole world. What is the significance of the Crystal Palace for you as a metaphor? I think it's a very powerful uh, metaphor. And, you know, someone like Dostoevsky, um, who first used it, um, was very aware of its kind of moral and political charge, which is that, look, uh, here is a country that has gotten ahead of everyone else with its particular... Meaning England. Meaning England, with its advantages. And they have uh, upheld this ideal of materialism which is really irresistible for, 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 for practically, you know, everyone. And what this is doing is this is sort of really transforming the world with science, with industry, with ideologies of progress, and that it's very, very difficult to come up with a response to this because people are naturally attracted to this ideal. And at the same time, it's a very deceptive ideal um, because only a tiny minority will actually be able to enjoy living in the Crystal Palace. 
Um, so even as the Crystal Palace is being built, it's being critiqued by the Russians, um, Germans in a, in, a, in a different way, that this is really a civilization of the minority, which is also a critique Rousseau has made early on. Um, and that a majority will feel left out, left behind. I mean, again, coming back to the present, that those feelings are, you know, very, very, very much with us at this point. But of course, the, ir- the irony is that um, actually over the course of the 19th century, Germany industrializes so efficiently that by the end of the century, it's overtaking Britain as an industrial power. Uh, Russia, though, that's not the case. Russia does not really become an organic part of what we might now call the modern West. And you cast Russia really as the paradigm of the society that is having to confront all these sort of turbulent novelties um, and, and that Russia, in a sense, blazes the course for other civilizations as well. I think Russia is a hugely, hugely important um, country in that respect, that it, it does, um, in a way, precede the whole tormented process of becoming more like the West that you know, countries in Asia and Africa are still struggling with. And that is a process that inflicts a whole lot of psychic injuries uh, where you start to essentially dislike the people that you want to be more like them, even as you want to be more like them. Um, And so this oscillation between self-hatred and a hatred that is projected towards the West, towards the people who are your models, um, you can never quite escape it. And you can see it even in Russia today. Yes, so so, so this, what kind of mirror does 19th century Russia hold up to Putin's Russia? Well, in the sense of this unresolved identity, do you belong to Asia? Do you belong to Europe? Um, Where exactly do you stand? Uh, Do we want to be more like the West or do we have a particular past, a very different religion, a very different religious tradition that entitles us to a very distinctive, identity of our own. All these questions that people in the 19th century, people like Tolstoy or Dostoevsky were struggling with, are still being struggled with as we speak. Uh, And at the same time, I think there's a political manifestation of that too, because it's a largely peasant country which is trying to become modern. It unleashes the pathology of the educated young man who's not part of any power elite who's also disconnected from the peasant masses by virtue of education, who becomes a radical, who becomes a revolutionary. And that is a pattern we've seen in one country after another in Asia and Africa, most prominently in recent years in in, in Muslim countries of um, educated young men turning to radical causes. And Russia in the 19th century first essentially outlined this particular response, this particular response, which is, you know, a kind of political pathology. Which Dostoevsky famously writes, uh, um, possessed the devils about. Um, So so do you think that there is, um, there's a kind of um, response to the pressures of modernity that generates terror as a kind of, escape from it? I mean, is that, is that what you're arguing? Well, it's, it's, it's obviously, I mean, there are many, many factors at work, but I think essentially the pressure to be something else than what you are, 
a pressure to conform to a mode of life um, voluntarily or, or, or you know, in, in the cases where modern imperialism forces you to be in a certain way, there's always a backlash, there's always a reaction to that. And that can take many different forms. It can take a form like it did in Germany of people actually declaring holy war. Uh, it can take the form of the Chechens in, in, in mid-19th century Russia engaging in, again, what we now call jihad or, or, a, or a war of war for freedom, which Tolstoy witnessed. Um, or it can take uh, a much more insidious form of psychic damage, of self-hatred, self-loathing, um, and, and also finding various agents of that modernity around you, whether it's Jews or cosmopolitans, ruthless cosmopolitans, and unloading your hatred upon them. So we have to think about modernity as not only improving people's life chances, increasing their mortality rates, but also as a source of many, many pathologies. Well, um, I mean, Dostoevsky, um, famously, his, his response to this crisis was to turn to the Orthodox Church, um, and he enshrines Orthodox Christianity as the beacon that will light up the sort of monster, the horrors of the modern world. But Russia is at least Christian, as of course the Western powers are. Presumably the implication of what you're saying is that the psychic tensions are much greater in civilizations that are not Christian. That are not Christian and have had their own sense of universal missions, you know, uh, maybe not quite in the same way as, 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 as say, modern forms of imperialism, but if you are a Muslim in the 19th century and you are aware of the fact that a large swath of territory right from Morocco to Java and even beyond, uh, wherever you travel, you'll find mosques where you'll find Muslims, you'll find Muslim rulers, um, especially in the, in the sort of 16th, 17th century. Um, you could look at a very, very broad swath of territory and think, you know, this is this is this is part of a kind of larger cultural world. Um, for those people, the experience of uh, modern forms of imperialism is is even more humiliating. Um, I think you know what, what one shouldn't probably look at degrees here, but the fact is that, and I think um, something I really did want to point out that even the Germans who share so much with their neighbors um, come up with the most vicious response to. French imperialism to Napoleon. Um, they are the ones to work up the most vicious forms of hatred, and 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 this is this is a, some of their best writers and and thinkers and dramatists who are dealing in this language of hatred. So I think it's it's it becomes important then to understand some of the pathological, not to condone them, but to understand some of the pathological reactions that have emerged from, as you say, non-Christian, non-Western parts of the world to these pressures, external pressures, change your lifestyle, change your language, um, change your mode of economy, change your mode of politics. Um, what we have been seeing is a kind of pushback to that. Um, that cannot be neatly mapped along East versus West lines. You know, these yeah. so these conflicts yeah. are happening yeah. internally yeah. within these societies. Although having said that, there is obviously a kind of cultural division between the Islamic and, and what was previously the Christian, I suppose now the Western worlds. Um, what do you think the impact 
even to talk about Islam as, as, as a monolith is, is, of course, ridiculous. But let's say the Muslim world. What, is, what, what has the greater impact on the Muslim world? The experience of directly being absorbed into European colonial empires or the intellectual and cultural influences that Western dominance brings? I think both, because the processes are kind of more or less simultaneous. Um, so the loss of, with the loss of political sovereignty um, also is then is accompanied by loss of intellectual and political confidence. I mean, I think Germany might be a very different place if it had been occupied um, for more than just a few years that Napoleon occupied it, uh, if it had not experienced a degree of sovereignty. Um, but I think for these countries to be occupied for decades, sometimes more than a century, to have their, and even in the case of Turkey, which was not actually occupied or very briefly, um, to have a kind of cultural colonialism at work there where it is being imposed by the country's rulers. Uh, it's, the, it's the country's Turkish rulers who are uprooting large members, large numbers of the population and saying, no, look, you have to now conform to the way of civilization. And who defines civilization? And, and, and specifically the person who is associated with that trend is Ashturk. Yes. Um, and one of the things I found most revelatory in your book was the influence that Ashturk then has on European leaders. So Ashturk is influenced by Europe and then he in turn influences leaders in, in, in the West. So very much. I mean, that, you know, that was again. What, 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 you know, who, who are the people who are being influenced? Um, this is. I mean, this is exactly right. This is the right way to pose the question, which is to say, you know, you know, the way in which we've understood history as ideas kind of, you know, emerging from one part of the world, traveling to others. It's much more complicated than obviously a lot of ideas emerged from late 18th century Europe, early 19th century Europe, and traveled to different parts of the world. But they traveled more or less simultaneously. And then they started to pollinate, cross-pollinate, um, fertilize each other, and new, strange new hybrids emerged. So we have a situation in which Hitler and Mussolini are looking at Turkey, uh, completely obsessed with it, and thinking, who's this guy who's emerged out of nowhere and is putting his nation together, uh, which has been humiliated, which has been partitioned, which has been essentially you know, treated horribly badly by Western powers. And here is this man consolidating his country on the ruins, a new nation state on the ruins of old empires. We have something to learn from this fellow. Um, so this, you know, again, sort of undercuts this whole East versus West dichotomy that we have been victims to for, for far too long and shows that essentially the modern world really is one continuum. And ideas, ideologies have emerged in different parts of the world and you know, people have been looking at each other um, and learning from each other for at least 200 years. And this cannot be neatly mapped onto you know, some of our ideological divisions. So does that mean now that for non-Western civilizations, the ambition to return to a pre-modern form, a pre-Western form of, of their civilization is a hopeless one? It's a total fantasy. It's a total fantasy because, you know, I think uh, too much has changed in the interim. Too much has changed for us to plausibly imagine ourselves as becoming less modern, more Muslim or more Hindu. And one reason why 
so many nationalisms today or so many religious fundamentalisms today are so violent is because there's an awareness there that this project is hopeless, um, that it cannot be achieved. But you drive yourself, uh, you become more violent in the process of achieving it. And um, the fact is that there is no way we can go back to being a religious Muslim, however hard you try today, you know, however much you study the Quran, because there is there has been a big break. And the way in which we thought about the world, our relationship with it, um, we were talking about this earlier, but the way in which your horizons were defined by the presence of a God, by the presence of divinity in the sense that everything that surrounds us is his creation. And obviously every religion have, has have manifested this in, in different ways, but that sense is gone, it's missing. We are all irredeemably secularized, you know, no matter how strongly we claim so, to be religious. I mean, that's a fascinating thought because it, it implies that clearly we can recognize that someone like Ataturk or later Nasser are clearly influenced by Western modes of thinking. But it suggests that, that someone like Sai Qutub, who is seen really as the sort of the grandfather of, of, of jihadism, um, is also a Western figure? I mean, is also influenced by the West? He's deeply influenced by the West. I mean, I think not so much the West as uh, secular ideologies of modernity, I think it'd be a more specific, uh, precise way of putting it. Because again, you know, the, the idea of the West is a very vague and diffuse one. Um, as I said, you know, there was a time when Germany was not part of the West. It really only meant Europe, uh, Western Europe, and that meant France and Britain and the United States. But Sayyid Qutb is very much a product of modernity. Uh, paradoxically, in his wish to reject modernity, yeah, um, that's what really defines him as modern. That's what defines the Germans as modern. That's what defines Russians as modern. So what? It, so, so what? What people tend to describe as Islamism, a project to enshrine a political form of Islam, is in itself paradigmatically modern, Absolutely. ironically. Absolutely. So Absolutely. ISIS, for instance, who are often described as, as medieval throwbacks, you would see as being recognisably in a tradition that goes back perhaps to the French Revolution. Very much so. I mean, you know, when you look at, say, a figure like Khomeini, um, you're looking at someone who, superficially at least, resembles a medieval uh, Ayatollah. Um, Shiite, very devout, doesn't speak a word of English, or at least claims not to, um, doesn't really know any foreign languages, um, who's totally educated, trained in the Islamic, uh, Persian, Shia tradition. But actually, he turns out to be a deeply modern figure. His whole idea of the Iranian state, his idea of what role the clergy should play in politics, they're all deeply derivative. Um, they're taken from all over the place, including from this fellow called Maududi, who's famous for, in, in, I mean, he's a big, he's a big figure in, in South Asia, um, but he was also translated into Farsi by Khomeini himself. And Khomeini brought Lenin's idea of the vanguard into political Islam. So it's, it's really 
I mean, political Islam, as we as we as we see it today, is 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 a kind of hodgepodge construction. It's it's it derives um, from the Western revolutionary tradition more from that than from any medieval. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of gloss there of, of, of you know, scripture and theology, but that whole ambition to create a state to have representation that's a very modern idea. We didn't really have that. Uh, you know, before, before the late 18th century. As, I mean, I suppose that, that, that a charge that, um, that some might level at, at that perspective would be, ironically, bearing in mind that you're from India, that it's a very Eurocentric perspective. Because essentially you're saying that it's almost impossible now for anyone to escape this kind of tar of Western European influences. Well, the thing is, I mean, you know, I don't find the charge of Eurocentrism that offensive. I mean, my argument is that we've actually not been Eurocentric enough, that we have not explored enough um, the way in which Eurocentrism pervades practically every religion and ideology defined in the last 200 years. So I would, I would turn around and say, thank you very much. I would like to be more Eurocentric, actually. In my thinking. <laughs> well, I mean, it's really fascinating because at the beginning of the book, you describe yourself as a stepchild of the West. Um, and, and you say, I know that the divergent experiences um, invoked by the polemical representatives of East and West can coexist within the same person. So presumably this is actually kind of personal for you as well. I mean, this isn't just a, a, a study of the past few hundred years. This is also a study perhaps of, of tensions that exist within you, do you that's, think? That's, you know, that's very insightful. Uh, and thank you for that. I mean, I think, you know, in, in, in many ways, this history is very, feels very intimate to me um, because it is a way of working out um, or understanding the strands of my own identity. It's a way of acknowledging, recognizing the tensions and contradictions uh, within my own being and to see in which this particular history has made me who I am, the way in which that history has worked upon People I love, including my, including my parents, um, has made them both a little bit lost. Has also given them uh, chances and opportunities that they, their parents did not have. So it's been a, it's been a, in a way, a very ambiguous process, and 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 understanding it is really inseparable from you know this book or indeed everything and everything else that I've written. I, I mean, of course, India was colonized by the British. And there's a sense perhaps in which what Modi represents is, is a kickback against what the British brought, what Islamic rulers brought, an attempt to go back to a kind of primal form of Hindu civilization. Um, and that is, a you know, the desire to, um, to cast off foreign influences, to claim back a kind of indigenous control is a, a response to Western supremacy that we see a lot of across the world. But there is, of course, a, an irony <laughs> that, in a sense, that is what Brexit is about. And perhaps what is happening is that processes that the West unleashed in civilizations like India and the Islamic world are now unleashing similar processes in the very heartbeat of the West in Britain and France and in America? 
No, that's absolutely true. And I think uh, what it has done, this, 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 this sort of, um, especially the last year or so, it has destroyed a lot of our old categories of thought. Um, it has destroyed a whole lot of familiar oppositions, you know, liberalism versus fundamentalism, secularism versus religion, Islam versus modernity. Because what we are witnessing today, as you rightly point out, is this turbulence and turmoil that we used to locate in Iran or India or, 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 um, or Iraq or Egypt, those processes we've seen erupt within the heart of the modern West. And we have seen people making essentially fundamentalist claims that we need to take back our country, um, essentially a fantasy of a sovereign people who have their own well-defined culture and to which outsiders can never belong. Um, all this sort of fantasy of purity that we've seen quite accurately in different parts of the world, uh, now that we've seen those fantasies emerge volcanically in, 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 in this part, um, means that we have to really be more Eurocentric. <laughs> <laughs> while recognizing perhaps that what we mean by Eurocentrism exactly. is changing exactly. profoundly exactly. because the whole world has basically become Europe and so exactly. therefore Europe itself is that much less European. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, as you can see, this is a book that uh, is going to generate a lot of debate. I mean, it's completely fascinating. I learned a huge amount. It, I found it incredibly stimulating. Um, so thank you very much for writing it and thank you very much thank, for, thank you. for giving the chance to talk to you about it. That was hugely enjoyable. Thank you. That was Pankaj Mishra in conversation with Tom Holland. Age of Anger, A History of the Present, is out now, published by Alan Lane in the UK and Farrar, Strauss and Giroux in the US. And issue two of BBC World Histories is on sale now. Alongside this piece, it includes articles on the Russian revolutions of 1917, on how historians should understand Donald Trump, and on whether the Cold War ever really ended. You can order a copy directly from us by visiting buysubscriptions.com forward slash worldhistories2. And that's the number two, not the word. And if you're a subscriber to BBC History magazine, you'll receive free postage and packaging if ordering from the UK. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it. So your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search 
match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. And now it's time for the latest history news with our acting digital editor, Eleanor Evans. A carved stone statue of Queen Victoria, which has been missing from the Houses of Parliament for over 100 years, was taken by former Prime Minister William Gladstone, according to a report in The Telegraph. The 5 foot 6 inch tall statue is thought to have been removed from the Houses of Parliament during restoration works to the facade in the late 19th or early 20th century, during which time it is understood that members of Parliament were given the right to, quote, acquire the statues or other architectural elements when they were removed or replaced due to weathering. The figure was spotted during a routine valuation by an auctioneer in the shrubbery of a Hampshire property which was once owned by one of Gladstone's descendants. The present-day owner of the home in Ringwood acquired the statue when he bought the land in 1971 and it has remained in the back garden ever since. The statue will go on sale later this month and is expected to fetch a sum of at least £10,000. In other news, archaeologists have found a cave that once housed Dead Sea Scrolls in a cliff in the Judean desert. Though the ancient parchments were missing from the cave, the discovered artefacts include fragments of a scroll wrapping and a leather tying string. Israel's Hebrew University told the BBC that the objects were found concealed in niches along the cave's walls and in a tunnel at the rear and said that the missing parchments were probably taken by Bedouin people in the 1950s. Made up of more than 800 documents written in Hebrew, Aramaic and Greek, the Dead Sea Scrolls date from as early as the 4th century BC and were discovered in 11 caves near the Dead Sea, east of Jerusalem, between 1947 and 1956. This marks the first such discovery in more than 60 years. Dr. Oren Gutfeld from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, who led the team which excavated the latest cave, said... Until now, it was accepted that Dead Sea Scrolls were found only in 11 caves at Qumran, but now there is no doubt this is the 12th cave. He said that this could be just the first in a series of discoveries, with hundreds of caves yet to be explored. Just before we go, here's a reminder that tickets are still on sale for our Victorians and World War II Day events at Bristol's M-Shed on the 25th and 26th of this month. For more details on these, and an evening lecture by historian Bettina Hughes, please visit historyextra.com forward slash events. Well, that's pretty much it for this week, but do listen in next time for more from the world of history. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, 
which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.